My text today is taken from Luke chapter 7, verse 9. <clears throat> I'm sorry, that's, uh, I'm going to move it up two verses. It's uh, Luke 7, verse 7. And it's just the latter half of that verse that I want to focus on. I will read the entire verse, but pay particular attention to that latter part of the verse. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Dear ones, we have before us today a remarkable account of one about whose faith Jesus declared, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Since the Lord did not promiscuously cast that type of commendation around during His earthly ministry, we must carefully consider what it was about this man's faith that drew such esteem from Christ and which even led our Lord to marvel at this man's faith. For certainly here we find a man whose faith we should desire to emulate if we long to hear Christ give such approval concerning our faith. Remember what Hebrews 13:7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Here is a quality of faith, beloved, to which we can point and be sure that it represents in its nature the essence of true faith. Why is it? Why is it so important that we clearly understand what true faith is. Because, as we see in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without true faith. We can't do anything pleasing to God. We cannot even have a relationship with God without true faith. And without an accurate understanding of faith, Furthermore, one will simply ride this roller coaster up and down in his Christian experience. Dear ones, if your faith in Jesus Christ has been taking a beating recently, if you have perhaps been brought to doubt or even despair whether you have true faith at all, Christ extends to you today His arms and welcomes you to come unto Him and to hear His Word, to hear His promise today and to partake of the certainty of true faith in Christ and His unfailing promises. Our account begins shortly after Christ had concluded his words to the multitude in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. 
A sermon which the Lord Jesus Christ preached from a raised elevation, a mount, to multitudes of people gathered below, near the Sea of Galilee. And you'll remember that in this particular sermon that the Lord attacked the Jewish religious leaders for their hypocrisy of faith. Whereas they professed to be true believers, their faith was a charade. It was a mere show, for it lacked the essence of true faith. In fact, the Lord asks the question, a most thought-provoking question, of these hypocrites in Luke 6:46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You see the answer to such hypocrisy is found in the very next verse. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. You see, it is because these hypocrites have not come and heard. It is because they have not, in other words, believed the words or the promises of Christ that they cannot do them. They cannot do them because obedience presupposes faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot please God apart from true faith. And now, in the narrative, moving from Luke chapter 6 into Luke chapter 7, we find here an inspired illustration of a man who truly believed the promises of Christ, so as to provide a very stark contrast to the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees whom Jesus was addressing in Luke 6. The Holy Spirit, dear ones, in effect, cries out in this chapter, first part of this chapter, Luke 7. This is the hypocritical faith from which to flee, but here is the true faith by which to embrace the promises of Jesus Christ. Well, let us now consider closely the so great faith shown to us here so that we might earnestly desire and follow after it by God's grace. The first major point in our text is this. True faith is no respecter of persons. True faith is no respecter of persons. Look at verses 1 and 2, chapter 7. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. More accurately... What I'm saying here is that God who gives true faith gives it not on the basis of a person's social status, not on the basis of a person's wealth or education or vocation or abilities or even sincerity. True faith, dear ones, 
is not given to those whom society believes to be most worthy of it. But rather, true faith is a gift granted by God to those whom He has chosen from eternity to redeem. And so, from beginning to end, from the start to the finish, we are absolutely unworthy because it is God who has chosen us and who has effectually called us and who gives to us faith. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, we see very clearly, true faith is not given on the basis of respect to persons. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Here's the reason. Why has God chosen it this way? That no flesh should glory in His presence. That no human being would glory and boast in the presence of God. I deserve to be where I am. I deserve Thy mercy and Thy grace, Thy favor. No one can boast. You see, there was the initiative here in the gracious bestowal of true faith is God's and God's alone. And this is especially illustrated in the person of him of whom Christ said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And there are three reasons why, as we look at this person, that we can see God was no respecter of persons in granting faith to this Roman centurion. The first reason why he was no respecter of person is because he was a Roman. He was a Gentile. Strike one. He was not of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a Gentile to whom the Jews of that time referred to as unclean dogs. To even eat a meal with Gentiles was to associate with and contaminate oneself with that which was unclean. You remember the hurdle that the early Christians had in the book of Acts. You remember the situation in Antioch or with Peter going to Cornelius and the trouble that Peter got into at that point. You remember when uh, the situation in Antioch with Paul and Peter and how when the Jews came to Antioch, Peter separated from the Gentiles and ate only with the Jews, and how Paul publicly corrected Peter for his hypocrisy. Well, see, this was what was... The problem was this whole view of the uncleanness of the Gentiles. In fact, it took a vision from God in the form of this sheet that was let down from heaven, and God saying to Peter, kill and eat these unclean animals. Peter realized 
from that vision that God was also saying not only that those meats were clean and he could eat those meats, but he was also saying by means of that vision that as well Gentiles were clean and that the gospel was to be taken to Gentiles, that he should go forth to Cornelius and present the truth. The covenant of grace, dear ones, is not exclusively with those who are of the natural seed of Abraham, but with those who are of the faith of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, listen closely. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed, with faithful Abraham. The second reason why this passage demonstrates that God is no respecter of persons, that true faith is given not on the basis of respect of persons, is that this man was a centurion. Strike two. He was a centurion. Not only was he a Gentile, but his vocation was perhaps one of the most hated vocations. For in his vocation, he was a trained Roman soldier who had under him 100 well-trained Roman troops. A centurion to the Jew in Palestine represented their oppressor, the emperor. Naturally, the question arises at this point, how could a true believer serve in the pagan Roman government in such a capacity? Well, I suppose the same question could be asked concerning Joseph in Egypt or Naaman in Syria or Daniel in Babylon and in Persia. You see, the truth is that nothing forbade these believers from serving under tyrannical magistrates so long as they were not required to swear an unlawful oath or to perform an unlawful act. This Joseph, Naaman, Daniel, or the Roman centurion could not have lawfully done. They could not have sworn an oath of allegiance. They could not have performed some unlawful act and retained their positions. For to do so would be to violate the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It would be to violate the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. However, to serve in a capacity where one might use his influence to bring God's truth to various levels of a pagan government is perfectly consistent with bearing a faithful testimony to the truth even in dark places. I especially like what Samuel Rutherford has said concerning such oaths in Lex Rex or the English translation, The Law and the Prince, on page 40, where he succinctly, I think, summarizes the biblical position on such oaths. He says, and I quote, 
It is, I grant, often God's decree revealed by the event that an unlawful conqueror be on the throne. But this will, that is, God's providential will that set this this unlawful conqueror on the throne, God's providential will, is not our rule. And the people are to swear no oath of allegiance contrary to God's signi, which is His revealed will in His Word regulating us. We can swear no oath contrary to God's revealed Word. Even if there is one sitting upon the throne by God's providential will. The third reason why this text shows that true faith is not a respecter of persons is that he was living in Capernaum. Strike three. To the average person, that would appear to be strike three. You're out. Why? Why was living in Capernaum a likely strike against this man? Because it was the city of Capernaum that had so grossly neglected the teaching and the mighty works of the Lord. Consider with me very briefly what Matthew chapter 11 says concerning Capernaum. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted...
but rather to receive them. But it may be asked, can true faith, can true faith continue to stand in the presence of an husband or wife who does not believe? How does true faith continue to be obedient and faithful when you're living in the very home with one who's not a believer? Can it do that? Or the question may be asked, can true faith persevere in the face of parents who don't understand why you cannot participate in certain acts of worship as you once did? Can true faith stand against family members even? Not to be mean, not to be uh, harsh, but simply to stand upon the truth and say, I can't do that anymore. I love you. I will honor you, but I cannot sin against my God in this area. Or can true faith endure the endless taunts of co-workers or, or refuse to bow the knee to an unlawful civil government which is relentless in its tyranny? Absolutely, dear ones. With a certainty, true faith can stand in all of those circumstances and situations. Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10 the whole, the whole assumption to this word is that yes, true faith can withstand all of this pressure and opposition. Matthew 10.34, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father. And the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's true faith in action. Yes, true faith, dear ones, can withstand that type of pressure. By God's grace, you can stand as you stand upon the promises of God, as you draw strength from the Word of God. Is the exercise of such faith in Christ like that of the Roman centurion as he stood against the unbelief in Capernaum, is that, is that easy? Is it painless? Of course not. But is it worth it? Absolutely. It is worth it to stand and to have a clear conscience before God that you have stood for the truth regardless of what those may say in taunting and teasing, regardless of the persecution that comes, your reward, the Lord says, is great in heaven. And herein, dear ones, in this example of this Roman centurion, follows that kind of true faith that stood against the multitudes. The second main point, then, 
that we see concerning true faith is that true faith does indeed bear fruit. True faith does bear fruit. In Luke chapter 7, verses 2 through 6, notice these words. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was not When he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Before we look at the fruit borne by this Roman centurion as evidence of his faith, I want to make very clear that we understand that we are not saved nor declared righteous on the basis of any work which we perform, which we can offer to God. It is alone justification. Salvation is alone by faith in the person and work and promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is in no wise on the basis of anything that I can offer to God, even faith. That is not the grounds or the basis upon which God justifies you or me. Because even my faith falls far short of what it should be. My faith is not perfect. And yet God declares me righteous. Not on the basis of my faith, but on the basis of Christ's obedience and His righteousness. The Scripture, however, does teach that faith without works is dead. It is faith alone that justifies. Listen closely. But faith, true faith, is never alone. Because what accompanies true faith is always good works. A faith without works is a mere hollow and empty corpse, according to James. And therefore, we must testify against the error propagated by many churches today, wherein it is taught that one can be assured that he is a Christian who once made a profession of faith and yet has never evidenced any lasting love or obedience to the Word of God. We must testify against such a false teaching. Such a person in these churches is said to be a carnal Christian. I submit to you, such a person is not a carnal Christian Such a person is simply carnal. He is deceiving himself and he is a hypocrite if there are no good works that accompany his faith. The Roman centurion 
is conspicuously here known for the good fruit of his living faith. And I would have you note a couple evidences of that. Actually, three evidences of that in his in this text. First of all, note his mercy, his mercy shown to the lowly. In verse 2, where it says that this Roman centurion had a servant who was dear unto him, who was sick and ready to die. You see, this becomes the occasion for what follows his mercy toward a servant of his. It was not for a wealthy or powerful celebrity that he desired mercy to be shown. It was not even for a wife or a child or a parent. No, it was for a lowly servant within his household. And this is especially conspicuous. In the eyes of Roman law, A slave was defined as a living tool, basically, for the master's use. He had no rights. His master could legally treat him unfairly, abuse him, and even kill him if he so elected. Yet our text says concerning this Roman centurion that his lowly servant was dear to him. That is literally valuable. Him. That's amazing. In that society, that is absolutely amazing. What mercy this man had. The good work of mercy in his life evidenced his faith. To this man, value was not reckoned according to a person's social status, but was rather reckoned according to the faithful service of this servant. Out of all the miracles, and this is an interesting thing to note, out of all the miracles performed by Christ on behalf of people, this is perhaps the most unusual request. The Lord healed Peter's mother-in-law. The Lord healed the demon-possessed son of a pleading father. He healed the paralytic friend of four who lowered him through a roof. He raised from the dead the daughter of a synagogue leader. He raised from the dead the only son of a bereaved mother in Nain and the brother of grieving Martha and Mary. But this is the only example in the New Testament in which we have a slave owner requesting such mercy to be shown to a slave. This man was living out the mercy which God, his master, had shown him. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? You remember that parable in Matthew 18? Where a certain debt was owed to a king. And it was rather a minimal amount of money. And yet... The 
servant went and pled to the Lord and the king. And he was forgiven that debt. But that same servant went out to a fellow servant who owed him much less. Actually, I should say it was quite a bit that this first servant owed the king. In, this, in, in the fellow servant, it was quite less. And yet he demanded of this fellow servant that he repay him. You remember the point of that parable, that we are to show that kind of mercy to one another which Christ has shown us. Well, this was evident in this Roman centurion's life. And I challenge you, dear ones, today, you may or you may not have an abundance of material wealth to to bestow upon those who are in need. But the question is, are you evidencing your faith by searching out those to whom you may be merciful to with what God has blessed you with? If If you're not faithful in the little, how will you be faithful in the much? You see, mercy, dear ones, is evidenced by a willingness to serve and to help others who are in need. And you can do so, dear ones, by notes of encouragement, by intercessory prayers for others, by taking the time to show hospitality, to forgive, to cover the sins of others by not trying to make them as public as possible, but rather to deal with them as privately as possible. See, is your faith in Jesus Christ manifesting such mercy? Or are you rather rationalizing or excusing yourself because it's not the right time in your life to be one to show mercy to others? True faith is accompanied by such mercy. But notice, secondly, the way in which this true faith is evidenced in this text. It's evidence... Excuse me. It's also evidenced by his worship of the living God. For we find in verses 3 through 5 that this Roman centurion, apparently out of his own resources, built a synagogue in which to worship the living God. Skeptics of uh, God's word have tried to press a contradiction in these verses between what is stated here concerning the centurion sending the elders of the Jews to make this request of Jesus on his behalf and what is stated in the parallel account, if you look in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, wherein it mentions only the centurion making that request. However, I would submit to you it is a known fact that we ourselves are said to do that which we do by means of a representative or a proxy. And so we find in John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, in verse 1 it says that Jesus baptized many. It says Jesus baptized many. But in verse 2 it says, no, it wasn't Jesus that was baptizing, it was his disciples who were baptizing for him. And so, in like manner, we find here that though the accounts appear to differ, they're not in contradiction at all, any more than John 4.1 is in contradiction to John 4.2. The Roman centurion must have been indeed a wealthy man, 
in order to erect this house of worship to the Lord. <clears throat> you see, dear ones, his love for the people of Israel was no doubt due to his love for the God of Israel. And here, I believe, is one who had come to, to believe in the God who had revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And thus, as a stranger to the covenant, entered into a covenant relationship with God, previewing in this Roman centurion the gathering in of the Gentiles to Jesus Christ. Provoking to jealousy those to whom the promises had originally been made, namely Israel. And that is what we find happening in Romans chapter 9 through 11. That God says that God is, has blinded Israel for the most part. And he has brought in and is bringing in Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he will return and bring in all of his elect from Israel, a mighty ingathering of Israel. <clears throat> you see, here is a man who believed corporate worship to, to be a duty. Otherwise, he wouldn't have erected a house of worship. He believed corporate worship to be a duty. And so it was, and so it still is, a duty. Corporate worship is something that God requires of His people. Hebrews 10.25 says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is." However, it must be noted that such corporate worship can only be maintained where a church is faithful to the doctrine, worship, and government of Christ as established in His Word. In the Great Commission, the apostles were sent forth as ministers of the gospel, and what they were commanded to teach was only that which Christ had commanded them to teach. They were not to add to nor to subtract from what God had given to them. We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, <clears throat> with regard to the authority that God gives to his ministers. Apostle Paul says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification that is, edification in the truth, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. And so authority is given for the building up of the saints in the truth, not for the destroying of the saints by neglecting, ignoring, rejecting the truth. And that's why we find in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. We have no authority to do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And so it must be assumed 
that since Jesus Christ commanded his ministers to teach only that which he commanded them, that he would not have ordained and commissioned any minister who refused to teach the doctrine and worship and government authorized by himself, regardless of their gifts or credentials. And should any minister during Christ's earthly ministry have continued to teach or to baptize in the name of Christ contrary to the revealed doctrine, worship, or government of Christ, it must be maintained that he would have had no authority from Christ to do so, but only a pretended authority to do so. This is precisely, you see, the problem that many Christians face today in an age of gross defection from the truth. Many, many Christians, as we are learning through various communications, desire and pray to enjoy the pure ordinances of Jesus Christ through faithful preaching, worship and government. However, they find themselves bound by conscience to separate themselves from unfaithful churches in order that they might worship only according to Christ's ordinances. You see, the Word of God says in Proverbs 19.27 with regard to the need to separate and not to participate in law, unlawful ordinances. <clears throat> Proverbs 19.27 says, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Don't sit under the ministry and hear the instruction of those who cause you to err from the truth. Jesus told his disciples with regard to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 15:14 in the King James Version it says leave them alone. <clears throat> that same word that same verb that I just referred to leave them alone that same verb in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 11, 12, and 13 is the word for a husband or wife who divorces their mate. In other words, the Lord Jesus was saying, with regard to these scribes and Pharisees, separate from them, divorce them. We find also in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> From the Old Testament. God says concerning Ephraim that had become unfaithful and followed after false worship. God says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. What does God mean by let him alone? Don't worship with them. Don't meet with them when they gather to worship. Separate from them. Divorce them. Don't have anything to do with their worship or their practices. <clears throat> and then we find one more passage, 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Uh, Paul saying, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a command. This is not an option. We command you that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which ye received of us. 
actually, if I let me again say that that is found, <clears throat> I'm not sure what I said earlier, but that's found in Second Thessalonians 3, 6. <clears throat> if it is a command, dear ones, to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, how much more arguing from the lesser to the greater it is to withdraw from one who claims to be a minister and claims to be speaking the truth to withdraw from one who is not indeed administering purely the ordinances of Christ or from a church. But more often than not, those who maintain such a view of separation will be called divisive, schismatic, separatists, or perfectionists. However, it can never be legitimately maintained that the minority who separate from the majority in order to keep the commandments of Christ and in order to avoid sharing in the sins and errors of others are the separatists. Rather, those who obstinately depart from the truth, even though they be the are the separatists. Someone may object that the synagogues in which Jesus and the apostles taught were far from perfect and even offered resistance to the truth. That's true. Yes, it is. But Christ and the apostles though they preached in synagogues. Remember where the truth was resisted. What they did? They shook off the dust from their feet as a sign against them and moved on until they found those who would receive the truth. And so likewise today, Christians should earnestly desire to meet corporately with God's people each Lord's Day to enjoy the ordinances of Christ, but at the same time, they must only receive those ordinances as they are purely administered to what, according to what Christ has commanded. <clears throat> Such was the faith of this Roman centurion that he had established a synagogue and it established a synagogue because it is... He is commended for his faith. We must assume he established a synagogue in order to worship Christ according to the truth. And note thirdly here, the third evidence of this man's faith is his humility before God. And we find that referred to in chapter 7 of Luke, verse 6, where he comes declaring his own unworthiness. Whereas the Jews had said to Jesus as his representatives, quite interesting, they came as his representatives, and I don't believe that he told them to say this. I believe this is what they simply said. They said, here's a man who's worthy, Lord, but he sent others to Jesus, says friends, he sent others to Jesus saying, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house. His own sense of unworthiness before God certainly is an evidence of his faith, of true faith. You see, he was so overwhelmed with the power and the glory and the holiness of God that he could not bring himself to invite Christ 
into his house at that time. Now, this may not sit well with all the secular priests of the religion of self-esteem, but knowing and sensing your own unworthiness before the Lord is where true humility begins. John the Baptist was not worthy, he said, to loosen the straps of Christ's sandals. Peter cried out for Christ to depart from him after the miracle of the catch of fish because Peter realized in whose presence he stood. Such is the whole manner of life, dear ones, that characterizes a man of faith. He is a humble man. He is a humble man. You see, humility does not imply that a person is quiet. It doesn't imply that that a person is always self-deprecating, always putting himself down. True humility uh, is not evidenced by being uncertain about the truth, always qualifying, well, I'm not really sure that this is right or not, but this is what I think. That's not true humility. Nor does true humility evidence itself by never being righteously indignant for the cause of Christ and the truth. To the contrary, a truly humble man is a vocal witness to the truth of Christ. He doesn't exalt himself. Rather, he boldly exalts the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God. He, he tries to take attention away from himself so as, he, so as that he will not get in the way of people seeing the truth and the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is what John said. John said about Jesus, He must increase but I must decrease. There's a humble man. I must get out of the way. I must be simply, like John said, a voice crying out in the wilderness. A voice! Simply a voice. Or like Paul says, I'm just a clay pot, an earthen vessel. There are many things about me, marred, disfigured. But within, the minister of the gospel is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that must be faithfully declared. And let it be known that the humble man is certain as to the truth. He's confident about the truth. He's not like shifting sand. He's not a double-minded man unstable in all of his ways. Rather, he's certain. Like the Apostle Paul was in confronting Peter in Antioch. He's certain about the truth. And finally, the humble man is righteously indignant for the cause of Christ. Like Moses, who threw the tablets of God upon the mountain, breaking them into pieces upon seeing the wickedness of the Israelites. And yet the Scripture testifies that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But a meek man, a humble man, is one who is gentle, one who is patient, one who is willing to work with whomever has a heart to seek the truth. You see, many Pharisees did not take a second thought about having Christ come into their homes. Not that it was sinful to have Christ into their homes. But this man, this Roman centurion, did not 
have Christ into his home because he was so conscious of his own personal unworthiness before a holy God. Note how the elders of the Jews, as we've noted, proclaim his worthiness, but he decries his own worthiness. This is a man who in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, he's like the man who's beating his chest simply saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The third main point from our text. We see here true faith defined. True faith defined in verses 7 and 8. Luke 7, verses 7 and 8, where we find these words. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. If we're to properly understand true faith, I think it's important that we try to understand what it is not and then to look at what it is. And so we were, first of all, going to consider what true faith is not. True faith, first of all, is not presumption. Acting boldly or confidently is not necessarily true faith. To affirm so, to affirm that that was true faith, to simply act boldly or confidently, is in effect to to grant that one who uh, is completely deceived by error and yet who proceeds boldly down such a path is exercising true faith. However, boldness in error, or better, obstinacy in error, is not true faith. It is true presumption. According to the scripture, it is believing a lie. That's not true faith. It's believing a lie. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. Speaking of of the deception that will come upon the earth through the man of sin. It says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion. For what cause? Because in the previous verse, they have not loved the truth. They have not received the truth. They have not loved the truth. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, when a person is overcome by deception, he can be very, very bold. He can be so self-deceived that he he could uh, portray himself as having no doubt about what he believes. But he's believed a lie if he's not standing upon the truth. And that is not true faith. The second thing true faith is not, true faith is not mere sincerity. It is possible, dear ones, to be sincerely wrong. This is very similar to this first uh, item concerning presumption. But 
thought that it would be important to make this distinction. <clears throat> if mere sincerity was all that was needed to ensure that one had genuine faith, then we would be compelled to conclude that all false religions have in them those who exercise true faith. Would we not? We would then have no right to condemn any error contrary to the Word of God so long as one was sincere in his error. As long as he was, to the best of his ability, following his conscience, wherever his conscience leads him. Pretended liberty of conscience. It is not sincerity that determines whether someone is exercising true faith. It is not even whether someone says, I'm following my conscience that determines whether one is exercising true faith. It is whether that conscience is guided by the truth of God's Word that determines whether that person is exercising true faith. We find in God's Word, very clearly in Proverbs 14.12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Thirdly, true faith is not seeing with the physical eye what is believed. Contrary to the popular opinion of many, seeing is not believing. This is the faith of the philosophical materialist who must have empirical evidence that he can see, touch, hear, taste, or smell before he will believe. However, such a materialist is patently inconsistent with his own presuppositions at this point, for he believes countless things which he never has observed Ask, who, ask one of these scientists, one of these materialists, when they observed the origin of the universe. Ask them if they've ever observed a law of, of logic and countless other examples. You see, this was the sin of Mary and Martha who declared to Jesus that had he arrived sooner to the grave, had he come sooner, their brother would not have died. In other words, Lord, if you had been bodily present here, our brother would not have died. See, that's the believing is seeing type of mentality. That God or Christ needed to be there to heal. That's not the case at all. That we fall into that trap, do we not? Fourthly, true faith, dear ones, is not implicit faith. Such is the view of Rome and all her daughters who compel from the members of their churches a faith based upon mere human authority. Such a disingenuous and false faith declares, because God has given to us His divine authority, you must believe all that we say to be true simply because we declare it to be true. You see, implicit faith always usurps the divine authority that belongs to God alone. Implicit faith is, is, in essence, to set oneself up in the place of God, which is exactly what Paul prophesies concerning the man of sin. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, who is and represents the papacy, who compels implicit faith by seating himself exalting himself above God and seating himself in the church of God or in the temple of God. Compelling obedience by his mere authority. 
You see, to the contrary, it is our duty not, on, not to allow our conscience to be enslaved to the mere authority of any man. 1 Corinthians 7.23 commands us, says, we are not to be the slaves of men. Our consciences must not be enslaved to any man. God alone is Lord of the conscience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, the apostles, even themselves, as they speak to the Corinthians, say, we have no dominion over your faith. We as mere men have no dominion over your faith. On the contrary, we speaking on behalf of God, though, because it is God's word at that point then that binds the conscience. God's word has authority over your faith. And so it must be affirmed as we consider this, that true faith is not implicit faith. We must also affirm that the faithful subordinate standards of a church are not the mere declarations of men when they are agreeable to the word of God, for they simply express the true meaning of Scripture. The subordinate standards that are faithful to God's Word bind our conscience not by the authority of man, but rather by the authority of God. And thus to swear to uphold and defend such a faithful subordinate standard is not implicit faith, but rather explicit faith in the truth of God's revealed Word. Fifthly, true faith is not a meritorious work. True faith, dear ones, is not a work upon which God looks and on the basis of that faith declares us to be righteous in Christ. The only meritorious ground upon which we are declared righteous is the righteousness and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith, dear ones, could never be a meritorious work, for it is never, as we've said before, it is never completely righteous in this life. We can never <clears throat> offer to God anything that we do that is blameless or perfect in any respect. And so let us now consider what true faith is. <clears throat> What is true faith? First of all, true faith is a gracious gift of God. <clears throat> you see, by nature we are all like Lazarus, dead. Dead to God, dead in faith, dead in our trespasses and sins. But just as Christ effectually called Lazarus by name from the dead, even so God effectually calls all those by name from their spiritual graves whom he has chosen to save from all eternity. And the Roman centurion demonstrated this truth by his own declaration of his unworthiness in Luke 7, 6. He was declaring, I'm unworthy. He was declaring the implication and assumption that underlies that declaration is that faith is a gift of God. It's not a meritorious work. Secondly, <clears throat> true faith is the means, underline that word, the means, the means by which the promise of God is received. It is not the basis or it is not the grounds upon which God bestows His righteousness. It is the means, the instrument by which we believe in Christ. 
who is righteous. Third, thirdly, <clears throat> what is true faith? True faith is knowledge of God's revealed word. It is knowledge of God's revealed word. Look at Luke 7, 7. At this phrase. But say in a word. Jesus, or the Roman centurion, by means of these friends, carried this message to Jesus. And this was the message. But say in a word. And then my servant will be healed. Say in a word. You see, true faith is knowledge of God's revealed word. Without a word from God, dear ones, we cannot believe. For there is nothing to believe concerning God until He reveals it to us. Romans 10.17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And this centurion's faith was not in his own word. His faith was not in his own abilities. His faith was not in his own power or his works. His faith was in the word of Christ. It was in the promise of God. And here is why we must, I believe, be ever so faithful to instruct our children in the truth. For they can only have true faith as they come to know and to understand what God has revealed in His Word. Faith comes by hearing and understanding the Word of God. What an incentive, dear ones. Do you want to see your children come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Be faithful in instructing them and giving them a knowledge of Him. That's how faith comes by hearing and understanding and knowing the truth. And this phrase of this Roman centurion, but say in a word, implies that there must be a promise of God to believe. There must be a word from Christ. Say in a word, and I'll believe it. I think it's also important to realize as we consider this, this uh, uh, truth concerning faith that, it, that tr- true faith is knowledge of God's revealed word. <clears throat> it's important to realize that this is why we must never ignore, neglect, nor reject what may seem like the least truth of God. For to do so, listen carefully, To do so is essentially to undermine the very foundation of true faith, which is the Word of God. To to say that you will believe the essentials of God's Word, but all of these seemingly insignificant things, ah, they're just not that important, I won't worry about them, that type of attitude... You see, you have undermined the very foundation of faith, which is the truth of God's Word. The Word of God. The revealed Word of God is the foundation. And if one is the revealed Word of God, even if it seems like it is 
seemingly small or insignificant. And this major one you believe to be the revealed Word of God, it is the Word of God that underlies both of them and for which they must be believed. <clears throat> Remember what Christ said in Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Remember what he said as well in the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. And those who would seek to categorize commandments into greater commandments or lesser commandments or the essential and the non-essential make these kinds of distinctions. Jesus says, Whosoever there shall, therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, that is the least commandments, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Fourthly, what is true faith? True faith is assent or agreement that God's revealed word is true. And that also is implied in that phrase, but say in a word. That phrase from the Roman centurion, say in a word. He's not saying in that phrase, but say in a, uh, a false word, and I'll believe. The assumption is, say in a word the truth, and I'll believe it. So there is in that particular uh, uh, phrase, the assumption of assent and agreement as well in true faith. <clears throat> I might note very quickly that this agreement goes beyond mere knowledge of a fact, for it is possible to hear or to read a proposition, for example, in a, by a newscaster, or to read something in a book, and yet not agree that it is true. So you can know certain propositions, but yet not agree with those propositions as being true. So we're moving beyond simply knowledge to agreement with that knowledge, that it is true, that the revealed word is indeed absolutely true. True faith, dear ones, reads and hears the word of God and confesses without reservation that it is true. Why does it do so? Because it is God who is speaking in the Scriptures and not some mere man. You see, the Roman centurion was simply waiting. He was waiting with bated breath on the end or the edge of his seat for Christ simply to speak the word. Say the word. Tell me the truth. Is that our attitude? Do we have a hungering and thirsting? to search, to seek out, to go to whatever extremes to know the truth. That was the faith that this man had. He was waiting for it. We must never, dear ones, <clears throat> allow our pride or our comfort level or our desire to maintain some professed uh, type of unity or relationship with anyone on earth to keep us from acknowledging and confessing the truth when it is our duty to do so. Never. Rather, true faith is always, is always hungering and thirsting for the truth. <clears throat> and finally, what is true faith? It is trusting. Trusting the Word of God. In that phrase in Luke 7, 7, and my servant shall be.
be healed. Say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. You see, trusting in the Word of God or the promises of Christ is not only affirming the truthfulness of that promise, but it is resting in the trustworthiness of the one who has promised to fulfill it. In other words, true faith is the response of a man, the response of a man to divine authority and divine faithfulness. If you take nothing more away from the sermon today, that, I think, would be worth it to me if you remember that true faith is a response of a man to divine authority and trustworthiness and faithfulness. It is resting in the faithfulness of God to keep His own word and not in the faithfulness of man. This divine authority, dear ones, is the supreme reason of true faith. Can God lie? Absolutely not. Will God be faithful to His Word and His promises? It rests upon His authority, His character, His nature, not upon ours. Do you see that? how that should encourage us as God's people to trust Him. This is His faithfulness. Resting and trusting Him simply to be faithful to Himself and not to deny Himself in His character. And so, upon what does our faith rest? It rests upon the authority and the character of God to keep his word. Consider with me very, very quickly Romans chapter 4 concerning Abraham and as he looked at what true faith was. We know all of the, the things he saw with his eyes about his age, the barrenness of, barrenness of his wife, all of these obstacles to his faith, but Here we see in verse 20 that it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now notice verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what He had promised, He was able also to perform. There you find, beloved, the foundation for true faith. It rests upon God, His Word, His faithfulness, His nature and character and authority. And no one, once you understand that truth, no one can shake that foundation. Once you're resting and trusting faithfully in that truth, no one can shake your faith. Not anything in hell, nothing upon earth can shake that faith. It's unshakable. This 
is illustrated back in our text by what the Roman centurion says concerning this whole issue of authority. In verse 8, he says, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. You see, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. I have the authority to command and my and my uh, servants obey. Why could why does he say that he believes? Because of the, he's implying the authority you have. My faith rests upon your authority. That's where true faith is founded upon the authority of God and upon Christ. <clears throat> And this is exactly what our confession of faith teaches in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says that the, the authority upon which the Word of God is to be believed is God who speaks in the Scriptures. God Himself speaking in the Scriptures. <clears throat> and I would make one brief application <clears throat> as we draw to a close. I would submit to you that those who can dispense with divine authority in the smallest commandments, I say smallest in, in quotes, or in their opinion the least truths, they in essence undermine the very reason for faith in the greatest commandments or the foundational truths of Christianity, whatever they consider to be essential, they undermine it all because it is the authority of God that is the foundation of every truth that's revealed in Scripture. He who willingly gives up his confession of the truth for the sake of peace or so-called peace or unity in the least truths has no reason to uphold unity on the basis of the greatest truths. As I said, for the authority of God upholds all truth. And you undermine that foundation, then you throw away all of it. The Scriptures, dear ones, contain a system of revealed truth which must be taken in connection. It is a chain. And if you break the chain... And what you consider to be the weakest link, you have broken the system of revealed truth. You have undermined the whole system of Scripture. So Scripture teaches, dear ones, we are to contend earnestly for the faith. Paul says it's one faith, one body and system of truth. We're to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And dear ones, it is not the greatest It is not the greatest of men who exercise faith that brings about the fulfillment of God's purpose. It is not how great that person's faith is. It is not the measure of that person's faith. Listen closely. It is the object of that faith. Keep that in mind. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, but that faith is in the living God, you have the faith, Jesus says, to move a mountain, to uproot that tree. 
that is the that is the thing we must remember. It is the object of our faith. Thus, I exhort you, beloved, don't be focused. Do not focus your attention on the greatness or the smallness of your faith. Take your eyes off of that, but rather focus your attention on the greatness, the majesty, the glory of your God who is the object of your faith and His faithfulness. And when Jesus says concerning this man's faith, He commends this man. He marvels at his faith and says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He's not building this man up per se. He's talking about the kind of faith that should be evident present in all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But it was especially great because of the darkness in that land and in that city. Throughout Israel, he was being rejected. As he came and presented his credentials, the authority of God was behind what he said, but he was being rejected. But this man believed that the authority of God was invested in the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he said. And so, dear ones, the Lord invites in Matthew 11:28, "Come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." The Lord says and gives and extends his invitation in Isaiah chapter 55. Verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Believe. Believe. Receive the promises of God. Realize that you are trusting in a faithful God. And it doesn't matter what you may be wrestling with right now doctrinally. It doesn't matter what you may be wrestling with in a very practical manner. This truth applies to all. It doesn't make any difference what you're going through in your life. Take your eyes off of yourself and put your faith in the, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and in a God who cannot fail. And you have won the victory. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise thee that thou hast challenged us this day to look to thee, to follow the example of this Roman centurion who waited for simply the word to be spoken. We ask, Lord, that Thou would give to us that hungering and thirsting, that Thou would give to us true faith to, to see Thee in Thy glory and to believe that, that our faith is founded upon the character of God. O oh, Father, we pray that Thou would encourage Thy people this day, those who are discouraged, those who have fallen into despair perhaps, those who have backslidden this week. O oh God, renew us all 
causes to come before Thee afresh and anew and to renew our vows unto Thee to commit our lives afresh to following Thee. O Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for Thy Spirit who gives us that infallible assurance and persuasion of the truth. We ask, Lord God, that Thou would that Thou would bless Thy people this day. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.